folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering, is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month for the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean Peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... The Koreas are officially at war, a situation that's remained unchanged since 1953 when the armistice agreement signed by China, North Korea, and the United States brought an end to active hostilities on the peninsula. The armistice, however, was not a peace settlement, and tensions along the DMZ or the 38th parallel have continued ever since. This long stalemate, this static state between the two Koreas, has prevented most kinds of social, cultural, and political exchanges, with some exceptions. This is where I, Jonathan Keefe's research comes in. In his work, Keefe, a Korea Foundation postdoctoral fellow at the University of Michigan's NAM Center for Korean Studies, explores an unconventional perspective on the relationship between writers in North and South Korea. Here, in the conclusion of our conversation, he discusses the real as well as imagined ways in which literature of the post-war period managed to cross the 38th parallel and attempts to outline a more complicated and nuanced understanding of what division literature has meant in Korea over the years. This episode was produced in collaboration with the University of Michigan's NAM Center for Korean Studies. So is it an emotional experience for you as a scholar visiting these writings? Uh, do you connect with it on an emotional level? Yes, of course. Um, at the same time, part of what's interesting about these letters is uh, it's unclear how we should read them as scholars. We know that writers in the North were reading South Korean publications. I don't have much evidence to say that at this time, people in the South were really reading North Korean publications. And I don't have any um, evidence that people in the North really had the belief that people in the South were reading North Korean publications. 
So should we read these letters as letters that were really written in order to be transmitted? Maybe, but I'm not sure. It's more that they were an expression? So we could read it as, yes, as an expression, you know, you, you can write an open letter and that does something for you regardless of whether it actually gets to its intended recipient, right? We can also read them as uh, more strategic constructions, right? So this could perhaps be one means which, through which North Korean writers at the time could kind of reimagine the proper bounds of what revolutionary literature and culture meant. In your lecture this week at the NAM Center for Korean Studies at the University of Michigan, you explored the real as well as imagined ways in which literature of this period crossed the 38th parallel. So can you unpack that for us? What does imagined mean in this instance? So imagined, there are multiple meanings to that. Um, first, let me just go back to real for a second, because there's another important dimension that I didn't mention. So as I was saying, there are lots of texts that we can read in North Korean publications that say that they're reading South Korean publications and they tell you what they're reading. There's another dimension of the real connections, which is the first examples are in the late 1950s, but this is really an early 1960s phenomenon. North Korean publications would reprint South Korean texts and images. So you can find comics from South Korea that are reprinted in North Korean publications. For example, the very famous, very long-running South Korean um, kind of current events comic, Koldao uh, Yungam, was reprinted. Multiple of the installments were reprinted in North Korean publications. You get poetry that's reprinted, you get fiction that's reprinted, you get uh, essays that are reprinted. They're always reprinted without the original author's names, but uh, they're marked as you know, text from the South or kind of art from the South. So we have the evidence of people reading, and then we also have a subsection of texts that are being reprinted and kind of further disseminated. So there are those two dimensions of kind of real exchange, right? So real transmission from south, in this case, to north. So the imagined can mean multiple things. Uh, so there are North Korean texts written, so for example, novels, that are supposed to take place in the south, right? And there's a certain construction of possibility, often possibilities for revolution in the south, um, usually connected to figures that are associated with specifically national culture as opposed to what's understood as the foreign. That's one thing. What I, I was more interested in here was actually texts written in the North that in some way engage in dialogue with texts from the South. And uh, there are a few, a number of examples of that. Just to go back to the, the letter writing, regardless of whether they were intended to be transmitted, the recipients' names were never given. So usually they would say, um, you know, to uh, you know, a South Korean writer, brother K, right? So they would just give an initial. Often there's not enough information to figure out who that might be. Sometimes there is. So sometimes there's a reference to, oh, I read one of your texts, this text, and that's a real story that we can locate and then we can kind of understand who this is. In most of the cases, I think they were written to real people. However, there are also cases in which, uh, if you read closely, you can understand that they're not actually written to real people. So we ha I do have an example of a letter that's written to a writer in the South. However, if you read how that writer's work is characterized, it's actually the protagonist from a South Korean novel who is a writer. The protagonist in the novel is, is a writer. And this is actually one of the South Korean texts that was reprinted in the North. 
So what's happening here is actually something that's very interesting, which is an imagined space, this kind of space of fiction in which there is a direct kind of dialogic engagement between a North Korean writer and a South Korean writer. So an attempt by this North Korean writer to take this pr protagonist and, and actually he adds things about this protagonist's life. So kind of attempt to co-produce this protagonist and co-produce the kind of fictional world together. That's something that's very interesting. We also get other, other novels which you can read. So for example, a, a North Korean novel that if you're familiar with South Korean literature from the time, you can actually see is a rewriting of a South Korean text. Um, and so again, this is another way in which um, you get in exchange in this fictional space in terms of kind of co-production of fictional imagination. South Korea has some really strong laws against sedition. So these were anonymous letters. Does that mean that reading and sharing this kind of literature wasn't ever uh, recognized as treasonous by the South Korean or North Korean governments? No. So from the North Korean perspective, this was an accepted activity. And in, it's almost like propaganda? It, it, again, it depends how you want to read them. So it, there is one way. If you want to read it as something that was um, understood maybe to be delivered, or that if you want to understand potentially South Korean readers as one of the intended audiences of these texts. So there's a specific context in which they started to be written. In April 1960, um, there was uh, a revolution that was a culmination of um, months of protests against the Syngman Rhee government for corrupt elections. Um, these are protests led by students, um, most famously university students, but also high school students, middle school students. So after the fall of the Syngman Rhee government, there actually was a lot of talk about possible reunification. And this is something that people in the North were watching very closely. And it's immediately after the April Revolution that writers in the North start writing these letters. So the first one is written, it's published in the June issue of a monthly journal, so it was written in May, basically. Right, so this is a, is right after, um, and it's kind of within this context of a space for possible reunification that you get this. Um, so, um, obviously, one of the things that's happening in North Korea's response to the April Revolution, and if you look at publications from the time of the April Revolution, they're paying a lot of attention to it. They're not only reporting on what's happened, but they're organizing mass rallies in support of people in the South. They're kind of, they're making illustrations that are in the daily newspapers, heroizing the protesters in the South. They're writing poets, poetry about what's happening in the South. And part of what's happening is, A, an attempt to kind of co-opt, potentially, the revolutionary forces that are, they think are opening up in the South. And also maybe to try to contain any uh, revolutionary impetus in the North that would be against the system. However, I think we can read potentially these letters as an attempt, again, to co-opt critical voices in the South, right? People that are critical of the South Korean state. So from that perspective, I think they, they didn't have a problem with this kind of letter writing. Um, from the South Korean perspective, so you're right that the, the national security law was a strict law. It's still on the books, right? People would have been in trouble if they were caught reading these letters. I don't have any records of that. Um, actually, one of the interesting things is that um, there, there is some record of people getting in trouble with South Korean authorities for something related to what I just mentioned, which is that, so there's a novelist named Nam Jung Hyun, a South Korean novelist, who uh, wrote a story called Land of Excrement, or Bunji, in uh, 1965, 
Um, and that was one of the stories that was reprinted in the North. And um, the South Korean government found that out and actually um, prosecuted Nam Jung-hyun for violating the national security law. It's an interesting case, and scholars have written about it, right? in part because he didn't publish his own work there. They published it, right? In any case, there was a, a perception that this could be a problem. However, there were many examples of his was not the only text, right? So there were plenty of writers, and none of them got in trouble. So exactly, I mean, obviously the, gov- the state had a certain issue with Nam Jung-hyun for a variety of reasons. Um, and he was very critical, especially of the American presence. So there's a, there's a politics in the background. Um, definitely people would have been in trouble if they were reading these texts at the time. Um, one of the interesting things is, while we don't have evidence that there's much reading of North Korean texts in South Korea at the time, there is evidence that people in South Korea still did have access, in a certain sense, to books that were banned because they were written by people who at some point went north. So when writers in the post-1945 era of national division had to make decisions, right? Some, a number of, of, of the most influential writers from the colonial period decided to go north. And what the national security law retroactively banned their writings. So their writings from even before that were all banned. However, if you read newspaper reports from South Korea in the 1950s, you'll find the government continuously reminding booksellers that they're not supposed to be selling this books, these books, which obviously means that they continued to be selling these books. So I don't have evidence that there were texts coming down, but there was also kind of potentially a space of negotiation in what could be read and couldn't be read. Finally, what is the end game with this research you're doing? And as you uh, prepare to publish a book on it, what are you working towards? So yeah, so this is a, a small part of a broader project, a broader project that attempts to think about the construction of North and South Korean literature in a common framework. And what I mean by that is not to erase the important um, spaces in between these two literary worlds that emerged, but to A, place them side by side, and to show how They have to be understood in relationship to each other and in terms of the certain limited but really interesting and really important dialogue that occurred between them, right? So to understand that you get these two distinct and uh, two very powerfully shaped literary fields in part by um, understanding or in part through looking at the complexity of their relationship to each other. So, um, so that means both looking at kind of parallel histories, so looking at how um, writers in each sphere addressed common topics, potentially in different ways, right? And it also means looking at connected history, looking at how um, they engaged with these other texts. And that could be a kind of uh, attempt at co-production. It could also be a rejection, right? So, you know, an attempt to do something of a similar type but in a radically different way in order to produce distance. But that distance is produced through some kind of engagement. Um, So that's kind of the broader idea, to think about these two distinct spheres as not only contemporaneous but kind of co-produced as distinct entities and in some kind of interactive dialogue with each other.
I, Jonathan Keefe, received his PhD in 2016 from the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures and the Institute for Comparative Literature and Society at Columbia University. He's now a Korea Foundation postdoctoral fellow at the NAM Center for Korean Studies at the University of Michigan, where he's preparing his book manuscript for publication. Jonathan, thanks for speaking with the Korea File. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. That's the Korea file for this week. To see I, Jonathan Keefe's full Nam Center lecture, find To a Poet in the South, literary exchanges across the 38th parallel in 1950s, 1960s Korea on YouTube. While you're there, subscribe to the Nam Center's YouTube channel at UMICHNCKS. That's U-M-I-C-H-N-C-K-S. You can subscribe to the Koreafile podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Blog Talk Radio. And you can find us as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and AngloInfoSoul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find the Koreafile there too and on Twitter at the Koreafile with daily links and current news and commentary about the peninsula. And please take a minute to leave a review of this podcast wherever you subscribe. It'll help new listeners discover the show. Then check back wherever you found this podcast on February 22nd for an in-depth conversation with academic Joshua Van Lu. We'll be discussing the weird world of tributary practice and Korea's deferential relationship to the Qing dynasty in the late Joseon period. Until then, thanks for listening. From Ann Arbor, I'm Andre Gulak.